welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 30, recorded on June 26th. 2019. The cloud pod remains cloudful. Uh, and for those of you who are paying attention, cloud episode 29 was also recorded on June 26th uh, because I am going off on vacation. And so we recorded our reinforce uh, show and now we are continuing on to our post reinforce show and we'll cover the normal news today. Uh, and then we'll have a little bit of a gap uh, before I get back from trip and we'll have a follow up to cover everything that happens in the next two weeks. Uh, just to let all our listeners know what's happening uh, if they're paying attention to the dates. Anyways, how are you guys doing? We just talked, uh, but we're talking again. <laughs> doing well. I'm just really impressed that you're willing to go all the way to Italy to test that new Direct Connect that Amazon has announced. I am. I am super impressed uh, that I will support you know helping you guys out on that, and I'll let you know how it works. Uh, I wasn't going to go to Milan, but you know now I have to make decisions and I have to make those changes. So, Perfect. but uh, by the time by the time Jonathan gets this episode out, though, I'll be probably on my way back from Italy. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't be that bad. I've been getting a little better recently, but I do know for a fact that if you did stop in Milan to look at the Direct Connect stuff, your wife would probably kill you. Yes, yes, she would. Yes, that is very true. She would be like, why are we looking at a box full of fiber cables? And like, and why are we being chased by security of Amazon? Because <laughs> I had to break in to get to it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so yeah, definitely won't be doing that, but uh, I'm going to be out there in Italy enjoying the summer vacation. So... Let's get into the show then. So first up, uh, Google App Engine. Uh, second generation runtimes are now getting double the memory plus Go 1.12 support and PHP 7.3 uh, support. And so you know, last year they announced this runtime and with the new additions, you can now not worry about memory management quite as much. Uh, you now have direct access to network VPCs uh, with second t- generation runtime and overall the doubling the RAM they say allows for applications to move easily load language libraries or scale vertically to increase concurrency via multi-processing or multi-threading which is code for Java takes a lot of memory to start up the JVM yeah. uh, which they also announced that they will be supporting to the Java 11 beta uh, in this Google app engine as well and so that's overall pretty nice there is a quote here from uh, Sam Melrose a system engineer at A1Coms Moving to a second generation runtime has saved us a lot of debugging time and helped us increase performance by at least 50%. The PHP 7.3 runtime is giving our developers the best of the bleeding edge for Laravel compatibility and speed, while still providing automatic security patching to meet our compliance requirements. It exceeds our expectations for reliability. The inclusion of native support for the open census module for Stackdriver Trace is also something we're really excited about. So customers need to be happy with this one. How do they know what the reliability is like if it's only just been announced? Well, I mean, the App Engine 2 has been out for a while. They just have more memory now. Okay. The, the thing that concerns you about that quote is 50% increase in performance. Like, were they just using the wrong tool to begin with? Or was there something chronically wrong with the first version of the runtime? I mean, a 50% increase in performance is, is very significant. Well, yeah, and it may, it may be that they also were had early access to this new, because they do mention PHP 7.3 in the quote, uh, which is what they're announcing in this release. So they may have had early access to the increased memory, and so they're saying the increased memory increased by 50%. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess the best thing is uh, no additional cost. Yeah, no additional cost. You got double the memory for no additional dollars. Always nice. Uh, I wonder if you can call that a price cut, technically. Cause... Yeah, it seems like it. You think so? You got twice as much for the same price. Yeah, I mean, I want. It's always nice to see customer uh, testimonials. I'm curious if App Engine is growing more quickly or less quickly than like uh, just customers using natives on GCP. That would be interesting. I want, I want to see a trend because that that seems like the just a way easier way to go if you could fit in an App Engine uh, and not have to worry about the natives. But 
uh, you know, what percent of people fit, how many are using it. I, I couldn't find any numbers. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to keep an eye on it because I, I don't have any other numbers on it either. I wonder if somebody would tell us who works at uh, GCP. Uh, well, moving on to Azure. Uh, so we talked about a few months ago the Azure monitor for scale sets, which was basically the ability to set uh, monitoring across a scale set. Uh, so you don't have to set up each individual host and have rollups and aggregate data and all that. Uh, so now they're announcing in public preview uh, support for Windows and Linux VM scale sets from within the scale set resource blade, uh, which apparently is a, a unique Azure <laughs> feature bug. I'm not really sure. But when you do uh, auto scaling, you apparently have to deploy with a uh, this type of blade. Uh, they call it a blade, but it's really just a set of container or, of hosts basically that handle running these VMs for you. Uh, and so now you can look at the blade level, uh, which is a different level of um, you know way to carve it up. Uh, but they also announced that they have done some additional things in the Azure monitor. Uh, they've added in-blade monitoring, which we just mentioned. They've added new drill down experience to identify issues on particular scale set instances. They've updated a new mapping UI to display the dependency diagram uh, and a new, a new UI-based enablement of monitoring from the scale set resource blades. So you can do it in the GUI. And then new examples for enabling monitoring using the Azure uh, resource manager templates, as well as policy enablement for monitoring at scale. So overall, uh, some nice improvements to this, but uh, a little bit <laughs> exposed something I didn't know about Azure uh, that uh, caught me by surprise on these these blades. I, I, I assume the blade thing was really just a reference to the... Um to the hypervisors, to the, to the hardware running running the VMs. And so, and that's basically what it is. But I, I didn't realize they were that dedicated to a single tenant um, in this model on the Azure side. So that was what I was surprised about. Hmm. But the maps look really interesting, the uh, the service maps. Yeah, they're very pretty. Uh, they very, remind me a lot of AppDynamics, um, visual diagrams of application flow. So yeah, they're, they're pretty nice. Yeah. Peter's got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> Yay, more monitoring. More monitoring. I like monitoring. Who doesn't like monitoring? Monitoring is always good. Yeah. Well, Amazon EKS uh, now is supporting Kubernetes 1.13.7, uh, as well as now support uh, container registry via private link and the new Kubernetes pod security policy capability uh, released in Kubernetes. Uh, well, of course, 1.137 is only you know two major releases behind the main branch, which is at 1.15, uh, which was released uh, about the same day this was announced. So Amazon's sticking with it, with being exactly two versions behind <laughs> at all times of Kubernetes. Uh, <laughs> The pod security policies I mentioned allow you to validate pod creates and update requests against a set of rules that you define. And they also have support uh, based on Kubernetes 1.13 support. Uh, they now support Kubernetes dry run capability, taint-based evictions, and raw block volume support. Uh, if you are running Kubernetes uh, 1.10 on your EKS cluster, that is now considered deprecated. And Amazon recommends you move to at least 1.111 or ideally 1.12 or 1.3 uh, as quickly as possible because they only support three versions of Kubernetes on EKS. I'm curious to see how long uh, you have to, to upgrade because sometimes I could get a little sticky. So they don't they don't say a timeline. I was looking for that, like, like how long. So basically what this means is that if you open a support case on 1.10 now, uh, their answer is going to be you should upgrade your cluster. I guess uh, that's fine. And, you know, so then that's the question of, you know, is that what you're going to do or are you going to try to troubleshoot it further to figure out what's wrong? But you're on your own. Yeah, you're on your own. That's cool. So tainted-based evictions what wasn't available prior? It, well, it was a feature that I think they introduced in early 1.1.3. Um, so now it's available because they support that, right. yes. Uh, it, it has been around since 1.13, and the name branch is 1.15. So if you're doing anything with Kubernetes on EC2 instances, you're like, what? You're just getting taint-based evictions? That's weird. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah it's a little a little interesting how EKS is kind of a little bit behind. 
uh, which I assume is partially their play to make it more stable. But you wonder yeah. if they're going to go down the path of like GKE does, where you know maybe you can get onto a more a more frequently released version um, if you're willing to have some trade-offs and compromise on uptime and availability. Because um, I think there's a risk of being at 1.13 uh, if you're trying to be a serious player in the Kubernetes space compared to GKE or even Azure. So I think this is something that they had to address sometime in the future. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you've uh, heard about this, but uh, HP is taking a page out of the Oracle Unbreakable Linux slash email marketing book and has announced the new Cloudless Computing Initiative from HP. Apparently, Cloudless Computing is a new approach to how software is developed, delivered, and consumed, and it radically simplifies and democratizes the way developers and users access the tools, services, and data that power the enterprise application. Uh, and apparently, Cloudless Computing is supposed to dissolve the distinction between private cloud and the public cloud, further deconstructing the wall that makes walled gardens possible. Now, I don't know about you guys, uh, but part of the reason why hybrid is a thing is because walled gardens needed to exist. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure that taking walled gardens out is what customers really want. Uh, and then they also claim that there are limitations of the public cloud or regulatory demands, the generic nature of the public cloud offering, and the expense of public cloud customization, especially given the proliferation of your data, um, is a big risk in the cloud. And then they had an interesting quote here from Daniel Newman, principal analyst at Futurum Research and CEO of BroadSuite Media Group. You're starting to see companies repatriating workloads, said Newman, but with on-premise private cloud, you either have all the problems on your own hands or often if you're leasing, you're not allowed to touch anything. In the end, Newman says, choice could wind up being at the end-all be-all in cloud. I mean, the fact that they have a media person and not a technical person as the quote for this, this article is a bit of a red flag to me. I mean, the, the whole thing just seems to be a steaming pile of horse crap. Well, that's, that's yeah. one way to look at it. Um. <laughs> the cloud going cloudless. It's just, we want to be, we want to be ahead. So we're, we're ahead of the cloud. Uh, it, but it, it, it doesn't make any sense. You read the article and the title going cloudless doesn't make any sense with what they're yeah, it's all cloud. There's no cloudless yeah, about it. It's all cloud. Exactly. It's, <laughs> yeah, it, it's worse than that. It's not just all cloud. It's it's the minim, It's the, the you know the minimum common set of features across all the all the clouds. It's like the worst multi-cloud strategy you could come up with. Let's just yeah. use all the all the basic bits so that we don't um, use any differentiating features from any of the providers, just so it can run badly anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, they they had in there the three key elements of a cloudless ecology. The trust fabric, the connectivity fabric, and the value fabric, which are really security, optimization, and openness, which is the tenant of any cloud. <laughs> so like, you're literally taking something we all know, which is security, optimization, and openness, and you're really giving a new branded name and saying you invented it. It's just fantastic. I heard Ford is going to go carless by inventing a new vehicle <laughs> with four wheels and a steering wheel that up to five passengers can ride in. Yeah. And then the very final uh, quote they had in this article, which was the, the best scaremongering I'd seen in a while. Uh, As an independent technologist and cloud writer, David Strom points out no technology can cure human error. The biggest limitations to the cloud have nothing to do with the technology. It has to do with the person who's using the technology, says Strom. They forget to put the right security on, or they put it on incorrectly, or they don't authenticate the right groups of users so people get locked out unintentionally of their data. These are things that are so well known, it's almost embarrassing that we were talking about them in 2019. Wow, it's almost Trumpish, isn't it? Really, almost, yeah. It's, it's almost like the the best example of a uh, like a machine written. Um, yeah, it's it's you know you, you know what I mean. Like you know, the Elon Musk yes. had a, had the software uh, initiative to to basically write fake news about things. It, it it stinks of fake news. It's like somebody's just run this fake fake news generator and it's pulled in a bunch of buzzwords and quotes from from random people and it's just written this pointless, useless article. It it reads to me like. 
a marketing person trying to figure out how to differentiate what HP is doing, which is not cloud, or just enabling some type of hybrid cloud. And then they were like, how do we make this sound like we're really leading the pack and we're really thought leaders in the space? And they just went and got all this marketing buzzwords and they just threw it in here. And then they found these two people who aren't tech people and said, give us some quotes. And we just put it together into this structure. And it's just a mess, just a mess. I, I have no idea what they're thinking, but you know, it just continues to further my belief that HP and e, HPE is just not a good company to be dealing with these days. But at least they're not uh, auditing all their customers to see how many servers they bought to then charge them more money like Oracle. So that's yeah, a win. I'm going to put the blame on the author, not the entire company. But uh, I'm not saying your thesis is wrong. I'm just, I'm going to put the blame on the author. Sure. But someone, <laughs> someone approved that author to write that. <laughs> so yeah. I, I have to blame them somewhat, but uh, yeah. But yeah, no, cloudless, uh, just right there with unbreakable Linux in my book. Like that's a terrible, terrible marketing thing that they're just going to get made fun of for the next six to nine months before people forget about it. Yeah. We'll make sure the podcast keeps digging into them for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> you look into who uh, Futurum Research are. I did, I did not, but uh, that's because I, I do half-ass internet research. But I, it sounds like you maybe did. <laughs> I'm just browsing the page now. I didn't do this in advance. It just looks uh, market disruption focused strategy. Well, I mean, how does, how, okay, so if you're a principal analyst at a research company, how are you also the CEO of a broad, of a media company? Like, it's, it's a little weird, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> because you're the only employee? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't really. know. Hey, everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod foghorn the promise of cloud delivered all right well let's move on to something more exciting than cloudless because that was uh was an unfortunate hp marketing blunder in my opinion uh, well, so Amazon, uh, you know, who is always criticized for not being a very big uh, fan of open source or taking, you know, taking the diamonds and leaving just the scraps behind uh, for all those open source vendors, uh, is making a big splash at OSCON uh, 2019, which is July 15th to 18th. This is the open source convention. Uh, it's in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Amazon is actually has a whole day uh, track, talk track called Open at Amazon Day on Tuesday. And then they have two keynotes. Uh, they're going to be on the main stage. Both Adrian Cockroft and uh, Arun Gupta are going to be talking. Uh, and they have several interesting talks throughout the event. So if you're going to go to OSCON uh, July 15th, 18th, which is a really great conference for those who have been, um, they will be there and available to learn all about how Amazon is helping to try to support open source, even if you don't believe them when they say that. Uh, <laughs> they at least try to convince you <laughs> otherwise. Uh, they will have a booth there, of course, since you get those sweet, sweet Amazon stickers. Uh, and if you are going thinking about going to OSCON, but you haven't bought your ticket yet, uh, Amazon actually has a 25% off coupon for you, which is AWS25 as the promo code. And you can go for 25% off, uh, which is not a bad deal. So uh, definitely nice to see Adrian, uh, who's the one who penned uh, their entire strategy on open source blog post when they did the uh, open search for Elastic uh, announcement. And it was one that kind of convinced me that maybe they weren't being so bad. Uh, so I'll be glad to see what he does on the keynote. Definitely be watching that uh, from live stream when I get back from Italy. Yeah, the, uh, the response to the MongoDB thing, that's, that's what he wrote, isn't it? The, um, the rebuttal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was yeah, interesting. 
read, read something about that recently where Mongo, MongoDB are now saying that they never intended <laughs> they never intended for for community help with their product they only they only open sourced um, their product only open sourced MongoDB um, to help them with their freemium sales strategy so at this, uh, on one hand they're claiming that uh, Amazon has stolen their stuff on the other hand they didn't want help anyway so good times very very much so well uh, Jonathan I officially say that we can call your prediction for Slack uh, being bought by somebody else dead <laughs> they went well. public on the New York Stock Exchange uh, and their stock soared to 50% above their initial listing price and closed at over a $20 billion valuation uh, so that's a, that's a pretty healthy exit onto the market yeah, yeah, but I did say before the IPO. You did. I did. <laughs> I think it was a pretty good bet, though. Right. Right. I'm shocked somebody didn't uh, snatch that up. I mean, at $20 billion, though, that's a big acquisition. I mean, because especially if you're doing, you know, even at the pre-IPO price, right, which probably maybe $5 billion, you know, if you're doing six to ten times revenue to make that acquisition happen, that's a very expensive acquisition. And so I don't know that it was worth it. And then, you know, the, even the quotes that Stuart Butterfield, who's the CEO, said, uh, you know, he said, we're a low single digit percentage penetrated into what we think is an enormous market, Butterfield said. There are a couple hundred million people whose work lives are mediated by emails and they would all be better off with Slack or something like it. So even they're saying, like, look, we have very low penetration. But, you know, do you really feel it's bigger than a $20 billion market or a $100 billion market? I, I don't know. It's a pretty big market. I mean, if you look, and the, the cool thing I think about Slack uh, is you see it penetrating um, large companies, not top down, but bottom up, where individual groups are finding ways to use it when it's not approved, shadow IT, um, and then so many of them are doing it that IT departments are basically saying, okay, we need a Slack strategy because everyone's using it anyway. Like I could see this, I could see this being the beginning of a of a pretty uh, a pretty steep revenue growth curve for them yeah it'll definitely we'll see as they uh, go public or, you know as they have the first couple of quarterly earnings what their growth looks like but you know it's interesting too because there's there some analysis i read and i'll try to find a link to it to link it to the show notes but uh he was basically talking about if you look at the enterprise customers that slack has they're all predominantly technology companies and so they're not really getting a lot of penetration on the enterprise products outside of technology companies and is that a risk to them and that's that's an interesting thought i hadn't really thought about because i work in tech companies that all use Slack. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's hard to, uh, to kind of disconnect like what's happening at an insurance company uh, versus, you know, a technology company like Facebook or whatever, where they're using products like this in a big way. I mean, even Amazon doesn't use Slack. They're a big chimes shop uh, and they got rid of Slack. So potentially their market is maybe not as strong as we think it is based on our perspective, which is maybe tainted. Think about the use cases that, that you can't, that, that Slack will never reach now because the, the, the model is to have public or private chat rooms full of groups of people. I mean, that doesn't really um, give them an opportunity to do, um, you know, healthcare chats, you know, online chats with people. There's, there's lots of lots of reasons why one-on-one -on -one chat is is always going to be important, and uh, public chats are not. Yeah, it's very true. I'm just bitter that they didn't get bought. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a good quote in uh, one of the articles where too. It said, uh, "Unicorns do best when they have a five to ten x advantage on the entrenched players." Said Patrick Moorhead, president and principal analyst at More Insights and Strategy. Both Microsoft with Teams and Google with Hangouts are entrenched players, and Slack has no discernible advantages over the two giants. This, plus the fact that Slack charges only a small percentage of its users, should give investors pause before investing. Well, th no, I think they're missing the part of the point, though. I mean, the, the technology. If if you had a team, if you had a good team of engineers, could you rebuild 
the Slack app, the Slack website, and the Slack backend in a reasonable amount of time. Sure, anyone could do that. I mean, isn't that what isn't that what uh, Atlassian tried to do with their Stride product, and Microsoft tried to do with Teams, and and both cases they were not nearly as successful. But do you think the reason they failed is because of the because of the tech stack or because of the product they built, or do you think it's because of marketing? I think Slack has won because of almost viral. Uh, marketing. I mean, you, you talk about bottom-up penetration into uh, into the enterprise, and I totally agree with that. And I think it's the it's the environment around Slack, it's the buzz around Slack and the plugins and how cool it is, which which makes it worth twenty million dollars. Not not their thick client. I don't know that it's marketing spend. I didn't. I don't know that I ever saw a Slack commercial. Uh, I think it's user experience. I think they're nailing the user experience, and that's going to help them continue to grow. Like. I can imagine them 50% year over year, at least for the next two, three years. Um, so if you look three years from now and all of a sudden their stock isn't going to be that ridiculously expensive. Well, let's move on to uh, RDS. So Amazon RDS now supports storage auto-scaling. This is for RDS for MariaDB, MySQL, PostgreSQL, SQL Server, and Oracle. Uh, automatically scale storage capacity in response to growing database workloads with zero downtime. Uh, previously, you had to manually provision storage capacity based on anticipated application demands and monitor this and address alerts as they came in. Now you just set a desired maximum storage limit, and the auto-scaling will take care of uh, everything else for you. Uh, you only pay for the storage consumed and not the maximum storage limit you set, so it's definitely a much more cost-effective way to make sure you don't run out of storage uh, in your growing production workloads. So still need some monitoring on that maximum limit, but uh, still much better, much-needed improvement for many companies using RDS. Especially for SQL Server, because SQL Server, if you ran out of space on RDS, it was really not fun to get from out of space to not out of space again. Yes, it does not respond well to that. Oracle doesn't (laughs) really like it very much either. (laughs) Yeah, I've had a couple weekends ruined from customers who didn't know that. Yeah, it's it's a pretty cool feature. Um, And we've been able to... expand the size of EBS volumes live for a while now and I assume they're using the same technology but just with a bit of orchestration around that mm-hmm. um, it's pretty cool I guess I guess the, the root of the problem is really like as an application developer how do you how do you architect an application so that the database doesn't grow continually because if you're building a service that's plan that you plan on running for 10 years it's, it's just not sustainable to hoard all that data i think i think a little, little bit of thought needs to go into how you life cycle that stuff out as well so that you don't need to grow continuously you mean we can't just turn on append only and never look back <laughs> you can until you reach the rds <laughs> limit so then it's a problem uh, i i did think it was interesting that they you know they they call it auto scaling but it's not really auto scaling it's it's auto growing auto <laughs> sizing yeah i'm sure it's a shrink again you know, and it, I wish that you didn't call it auto-scaling because auto-scaling implies that you could shrink it as well, which is really not the case because uh, there's technically no way to shrink an EBS volume today in Amazon. Um, and so I wish they had gone with a different name because I think this causes some confusion in people's mind when they hear auto-scaling. They assume one thing, and this is not that. Um, but otherwise, I, I agree with you. I think there's, you know, database architecture is complicated, and teams have to think about how they design it and how they deal with, you know, 
partitioning data tables. And you know, if I have this table that's only valid for a month, but I need the data for five years for compliance reasons, how do I move that to a lower, cheaper cost disk? How do I partition that out of the main data set so I don't have to index it all the time? There's lots of things you should be doing and thinking about to help address those issues. Well, uh, GCP has a new workload identity for Google Kubernetes service. Uh, services that need to talk to each other require, of course, authentication and authorization with Kubernetes. Uh, and traditional approaches could be challenging and require workarounds. Uh, those traditional approaches uh, were things like using service account keys as secrets in Kubernetes secrets, um, or leveraging node IAM service accounts, which uh, does not necessarily meet low least privilege uh, requirements. Now with the new workload identity, uh, it removes the need for workarounds, and it's fully integrated into the, the Google Kubernetes service to provide uh, identity and access to any of the Google services that you are servicing to use uh, with this new product. So this is really nice. They announced this uh, during Reinforce. Uh, as a nice uh, aside to what was going on at Reinforce. But uh, yeah, overall, nice feature. Come on, Jonathan. you got to have something smart to say about this one. I, I wish Amazon had the same thing, really. It's it's always um, service to service authentication. It just becomes, well, do we have to use roles and assume roles? I mean, it's this clunky kind of, um, you know, get caller identity, pre-sign key thing to verify that the, the caller is uh, belongs to the role which is allowed to make a call to you. It's this really nice, seamless way of doing service-to-service authentication. Well, but I think in the, in, at least in the ECS side, um, you have task-based roles, right? Which is basically limiting the permission set to the task itself versus to the IAM, to the whole EC2 host. I believe they moved a similar capability over to EKS, but I don't, you don't quote me on that. Uh, but I believe they did have something similar where they were able to expose specific IAM policies to specific services or pods uh, in Kubernetes. Uh, and so I think they've solved some of that, but maybe not quite as elegantly as the GKE solution is. Right. Well, there you have it. Well, that's it for uh, new news. Let's uh, move on to lightning round, Peter. All right. We have a lightning fast lightning round this week. And I'm predicting that the winner of today is going to be the winner of the first item based on the giggles and the secrets going on when we're when we were prepping. <laughs> Can't wait to hear what you guys are going to say. All right, so lightning round. We are, Jonathan is a few behind Justin, six to nine. Uh, I gave up years ago, and we have no guests today, so we won't worry about them. Um, all right, we'll start with Microsoft positioned as a leader in the Forrester Wave database as a service. Positioned clearly down to the left of Amazon Web Services. <laughs> 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 exactly. And like if you look at the if you look at the link, follow the link, click the link, look at the diagram. Microsoft may be in the leaders category, but it is almost the worst leader out of the group of five in the in in its uh, class. Yeah. MongoDB, Google, Amazon, and Oracle. Um, ahead well, of it. They're above. Wow, they're above Google and Mongo from a current offering. I, I, this wave, I, I, I had to talk to somebody about Forrester because I'm a little, like, they have Rackspace on here. Last I checked, Rackspace doesn't have a database. <laughs> they're just a managed service provider who provides database services. It's a little weird that they're even here on the list. I think even the Magic Quadrant has a little bit of uh, BS in it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Database so service-wise, I mean, Amazon is, is far and far beyond everyone else's managed database services. So it makes sense that Amazon's where it's at, but... Uh, I, I do find it funny that Microsoft touted this as a press release, that then you click at it and Amazon's clearly to the right and up from them. Poor <laughs> yeah. guys. Tough little mutt. All right. Amazon QuickSight now supports fine-grained access control over Amazon S3 and Athena. I mean, it seems like you should be able to limit what your QuickSight reporting database can actually access. So glad to have a day one feature six months later. 
<laughs> Amazon API Gateway adds configurable transport layer security version for custom domains. You know, this actually reminds me of something we didn't talk about in the Reinforce uh, recap show <laughs> about API Gateway. So I think Steve Schmidt on stage during the keynote said to the effect, like, now you can use CloudFront with API Gateway to do, you know, something with this TLS thing. And I was like, but the way he phrased it was like, you couldn't use CloudFront with API Gateway before. And I was thinking in the audience at the time, you only could use API Gateway with CloudFront forever. So <laughs> like, why are you saying it that way? Because it makes no sense if you've ever actually used API Gateway in any serious way. It's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's nice to have different options here for TLS. But I mean, I want the most strict TLS if I can for my gateway. Just It's an attack vector that I want to protect. And so if I'm not using the latest version of TLS, I think that's a bad choice. AWS Glue now provides workflows to orchestrate ETL workloads. Doesn't that the point of Glue was to create workflows? <laughs> To orchestrate ETL, like that was the point. <laughs> well, but now is now is when it provides that. So oh, okay, I got it. Yep, glue sticks your workloads right where they belong. Where do they belong? <laughs> in the cloud, or cloudlessly. In, in, the, in cloud. the cloudless. In the cloudless. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but isn't cloudless? Isn't that technically? Isn't isn't cloudless technically a blue sky or or rain? Or like, uh, why did they just call it? Why did they just call it HPE blue sky? Like, wouldn't that make more sense? Than cloudless. I... <laughs> You're assuming there's some sense. <laughs> true, true. Sorry. The poor sales guys, are they gonna find it in the uh, in like the sales catalog on the price sheet? It's like it doesn't exist. All right, Amazon Aurora with Postgres compatibility supports data import from Amazon S3. Woo. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty good. Getting data in. I mean, it was always nice to be able to sideload data into a Postgres database without using yeah, backup yeah. files. So, I mean, it's nice, but it, again, it feels like this is something you could do with ETL or with Glue, but it's now supported natively in Aurora. So, yeah. I'm just I'm waiting for Aurora to support import from my virtual tape library. Ooh, <laughs> can't wait for that. 1995 called Monster Tapes Back. Uh, AWS Lambda Console shows recent invocations using CloudWatch Insights. I mean, I'm glad this is kind of more obviously available to you in the console because this is kind of, it was always fun to go find this in CloudWatch. Uh, and so it's nice that it's actually in the console now uh, so you can actually see this data right there. Now, how hard was it before? You literally open the Lambda console, you click on your Lambda and then click monitoring and it opens up right there. It's three clicks. But it takes you over to the CloudWatch dashboard where now it's just going to take you to, it's going to be right in the console. You don't have to leave Lambda to get there, Jonathan. That's all it means. I don't know. If only browsers had tabs, yeah, tabs or something where you could know, open that's... multiple things at once. I mean, I have 3,000 tabs right now, so I mean, I can't ever find my tabs, but it's okay. Oh, Safari is, uh, is promising to auto-close your tabs after a period of inactivity. What? Oh, oh that is a terrible plan. My yeah, wife is going to hate that. <laughs> that's her. That's I, her. You, but I, I use my, uh, actually, was, was Safari on the list of the Forrester Wave databases? I use, the, I use the, my, my tabs in Safari as a virtual database of things that I haven't got around to yet. Yeah, that's it's my wife's to-do list. It's like, don't close my computer. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, you get people. You get people saying, "My laptop's running really slow." And you look at it; they got Chrome open with like so many tabs, you cannot even read the text in in the, in the top of the tab. You just see the little icons. Right, I'm feeling attacked, Jonathan. Feeling attacked. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> AWS has announced new Lambda at the edge monitoring uh, within the CloudFront console. 
I mean, that's where you deploy Lambda in the edge. So yes, I would hope that's where you can monitor it from as well. Uh, Amazon's Amazon's announcements of just trying to get quantity out there is uh, always they are scraping the barrel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How many? How many was it yesterday? I don't remember the number of uh, how many innovations they said they they've released. Uh, it was oh very... that that chart yeah. 200, 200 plus innovations. I'm like, yeah, but if you don't count. All the services, all the GAs in in regions they didn't previously support, like the uh, the GovCloud. I, I don't know that that graph would look quite so as impressive. Indeed. Yeah. All right, Peter. Who won I gotta the lightning say, round? I, I, I got to say, even though your timing was way better with Database as a Service, uh, the creativity for and the vision of wanting to import the Postgres from my virtual tape library <laughs> is going to take it. Nice. Nice. <laughs> uh, right. Okay, can we oh, automate good. that? Can we automate that? That'll be part of our normal workflow when we need to do a query. First, we restore from the VTL. The yeah, that sounds yeah. great. <laughs> but you know, you need to get you need to call Iron Mountain first, and you need to get them to convert yeah. the tape to VTL for you first, and then yeah. you can do this process. That's I wonder if I wonder if they charge extra for like the virtual robotic tape library to go out and then get the uh, get those tape objects for you. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. All right. Well, that's a that's another week at the Cloud Pod. Uh, again, we are a little bit on the hiatus here just because I will be traveling, but we will have two episodes out just like normal. Um, so you'll you'll to you out on the internet. You'll everything seems normal, but it's not. And we'll have a huge so huge show for you back uh, in the first second week of July. So we'll catch up on everything we missed while I was out. So see you in a few weeks, guys. Awesome. Have a great vacation. Thank yeah. You. Have fun. Bring back some stories. Bring back some oh, I will. Cloud, I will. Some cloudless stories, please. Yes, cloudless stories. Oh. All right. All right. Take it easy. Have a good one. Bye. And that is the week in cloud. We would like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.